Welcome to Dojo Discussions. I'm your host, J.M. Smith, and the purpose of this podcast series is to provide answers to commonly asked questions that listeners send in. Uh, We do this via Facebook live stream, and then the audio is pulled and compiled and added to our podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. If you have questions on anything related to God, the Bible, faith, culture, ethical issues, politics, anything like that, anything you've ever just wondered about, feel free to send those. Go to www.decipher.com. DiscipleDojo.org. You can submit questions through the contact page there. I'm recording the audio. Sorry, I'm juggling a lot. Now I'm recording the audio. Today, we're going to look at another question. We're going to unpack this over the next 45 minutes to an hour or so. We're going to unpack a question that two people actually asked me. I'm going to read the questions that they came in. Uh, One was on Facebook and one was on Instagram. It says, I have a question that's bugged me for a while. What happens to people who never get a chance to learn about the Bible and Jesus' sacrifice? As Christians, it's our duty to witness to everyone we can, but there are people who never get a chance to hear the message. What happens to them when they die? And then uh, another buddy of mine on Instagram, my friend Tom, asked, uh, he said, I want your opinion on those who don't believe in Jesus because they were never taught him, such as the tribe in the rainforest or in Africa. Shall they see heaven? I say yes, if good people. So this is a great question that people, pretty much everybody has asked at some point, um, because the gospel, the Christian message is, well, Jesus is, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So if that's the case, what about those people that never hear about him? What about people through no fault of their own? They were born at a time or a place where they didn't hear the message. You know, what about those people nine minutes after Jesus died on the cross who were dying somewhere far away, like in China or something, and the gospel literally had not ever had a chance to get preached. What about those people? Do they die and go to hell? Do they go to heaven? How are they judged? These are questions that uh, we're going we're gonna to unpack this a little bit today, and what I want to do is, instead of just telling you what I think, because that's never super helpful, um, I want to tell you how I approach this subject and give you the, the, where I'm coming from as a, a Bible-believing Christian. And that's the disclaimer up front. This is a Christian answering a question from other Christians about Christian doctrine. So, again, if you're not a Christian, if you're, you're like, I don't even believe this Jesus stuff to begin with, cool. You're just hearing an in-house discussion. Um, but for those who are Christians or even considering it, because this is something that a lot of people object to. I mean, I know of like there's a famous podcaster who went to Bible study for a long time. And then he talked about uh, some, one of his friends said, oh, your parents and your brother and your family, they don't believe in Jesus. They're going to go to hell. You need to tell them about him. And he was like, what? No, they're good people. I'm out of here. No more. I can't handle this. And he walked away from the faith. And it's something that a number of people have said. They're like, nope, I can't believe that. That's ridiculous. And so I want to start with what do we know move from the known to the unknown in any theological question that's what you need to do move from the known what's clear to the unclear and and handling things in light of that so that's what we're going to do there's a couple of things there one of the things right off the bat my starting point in all of this is in genesis 18 way 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 back before Jesus, before the church, before Israel, before the covenant, before Mount Sinai, before the Ten Commandments, way back, the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, God appeared to Abraham, and he told Abraham what, that, that he was about to judge a, a people group, specific peoples, the peoples of Sodom, Gomorrah, and the cities of the plains. This is Genesis 18. And God said to Abraham, this is what I'm going to do, because the, the outcry of their wickedness has come up before me. The, the outcry of this place, Sodom, has reached the heavens because they were so wicked. They were so evil. They were so corrupt. They were deserving of judgment. And, and God basically told Abraham, I'm about to do this. And in this exchange, in, it's in chapter 18, it's verse 25. We're not going to go through the whole thing. We're going to look at a lot of scripture today, kind of scattergunned. But I want you, if you're listening to this or you're watching this, to note these passages, write them down. You go look at them in their context and see what they're saying, because we don't have time to do a deep dive on every context. But God tells Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to judge these people who are legitimately wicked. We find out how wicked they are 
shortly after this. But Abraham then in this amazing exchange looks at God and he says, Abraham's got family there. He's got his nephew, Lot, who lives in uh, Sodom. And he's like, whoa, 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 wait, wait. Verse 25, he says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Then the Lord says, okay, if if there are righteous people, I'll spare them. If there are 50 righteous people in the whole area, I'll spare it. And then Abraham, knowing that there aren't 50 righteous people, has this bartering session where he barters them down. And finally, it gets to the point, he says, I will spare the entire area of judgment if there are just 10 righteous people, 10 not wicked, deserving of judgment people. I'll spare the whole, I will ignore all the evil for the sake of those 10. And later, of course, we find out there weren't 10 people in the city, and, and the city is destroyed, and there, were, there wasn't anybody in the city who was righteous from the text's point of view. What this shows, though, that line where Abram says, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? This is our starting point. Whenever we ask questions about heaven, hell, salvation, you know, who's going where, we're already getting into judge territory. And we have to keep in mind that at the end of the day, God is not just the judge. He's the epitome of justice to begin with. Like he's, God's nature is where we get our entire concept of justice. So if we have a, a rudimentary grasp of something being fair or unfair, right or, or, or unrighteous, how much more does God, who knows the hearts and the minds of everybody, who knows every hidden thought, who knows every circumstance, who knows every excuse, who knows every uh, moment of every day of every person who's ever lived on the earth, how much more then is he in a better position to cast judgment on who will and who will not be in his presence for eternity, which is what heaven is. And, and hell is the opposite of that, not being in God's presence for eternity. So he is in the position to know. And that's all the way back in Genesis 18. That should be how we begin. We shouldn't begin discussions of this with theological concepts or, or New Testament passages. We need, let's start at the beginning. I'm an Old Testament guy. I teach the Old Testament. And I think the gospel is in the Old Testament as much as the New. So <clears throat> let's start at the beginning. This is what we know about God. He's the judge of all the earth, and he will do what is right. He's in the position, not us. So that's the first premise. Second premise is Deuteronomy 29. So you flip over a couple of books later, and Deuteronomy 29, at the end of, of, if you followed the Deuteronomy series on Disciple Dojo podcast, you can go check it out. But at the end of Deuteronomy, God is, is, is pronouncing covenant curses, which was part of a covenant ceremony. There were blessings, there were, there were stipulations, blessings, and curses. And the blessings were for those, if you keep the covenant, the curses were, this is going to happen if you break the covenant. It's kind of like uh, stipulations in a contract today. And in the covenant cursing section, God is revealing all what's going to happen if Israel breaks the covenant. And he's, he's talking about the exile and the judgment that's going to happen when they're exiled to Babylon and, and for breaking the covenant. So in this, right after this section, he's talking about the judgment and why it's going to happen. And, and it, it, that's the context, judgment. Okay. And that's what this question started off as being about is about judgment. At the end of that whole section, chapter 29, verse 29, God wraps it up and he says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. Now, this is Moses' recap of everything God said. Moses says, there are secret things that belong to God. And then there are revealed things that belong to us. And the revealed things are revealed so that we will live by them. And we will live according to this law, this Torah at the time. That's another huge concept. So not only is God the judge of all the earth who will do what is right, but he has the secret things that belong to him. There are things that God knows that he has revealed to humanity, but there's a lot that he hasn't revealed to us. So this should keep us humble. And I know this grates on some people who like to have all their theological ducks in a row. 
Um, but this should keep us humble that God is doing stuff that we're not aware of. And he always has been from all the way back to Genesis, all the way through Revelation. God's always bigger than our theology. Doesn't mean our theology should be abandoned. It doesn't mean we say, well, I don't know. It's just whatever you believe. No, no. The revealed things have been revealed for us to live by. But there are secret things that belong to the Lord. So with those two premises in place, we can now start to wrestle with this question of what about people who never hear the gospel? What about people who never hear about Jesus? What about people who didn't have a chance to hear about Jesus? What about babies who die in their crib? What about severely mentally disabled people who can't comprehend much less accept and and receive the gospel and know about salvation? What about people who live in a place where they are never exposed? What about the people on North Sentinel Island in the Indian Ocean who have never been exposed to visitors and actually kill anybody who sits foot on the island? What about those types of people? Those are the questions that we ask. We have to keep in mind, judge of all the earth will do what is right. The secret things belong to the Lord. Now that's not the end. We can piece some things together. And so what we're going to do for the remainder of this session, we're going to look at what we know for sure from Scripture. This is all from a scriptural point of view. This is not me philosophizing and coming up with schemes. And This is just based on Scripture and historic Christian teaching. We're going to look at the different ways Christians have approached this because there are at least four different ways that Christians, Bible-believing Christians, I'm not talking about like super liberal Christians that are like, oh, the Bible's just a book by man. It's inspiring, not inspired. Um, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about Bible-believing, faithful Christians of all denominations, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, Coptic, all denominations. There are four basic approaches that they've kind of fallen in on. So, Here's some things that we know for sure the Scripture actively teaches. Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed a man once to die, and after this, judgment. So, we don't, as Christians, believe in reincarnation. We don't believe that there's an endless transmigration of souls. We don't believe that it's a wheel and we just keep going and it just keeps spinning. We did not have a past life. Everybody that has a past life, it's always somebody great and important. What if your past life was a janitor in the middle of Central Asia? You know, what if your past life was some, everybody's past life is always somebody famous in all these. I'm, I digress. I'm getting off on a tangent. Um, if you believe in transmigration of souls, and I do have Hindu friends, and I Hindu-ish friends, cool. Uh, this is not a time to debate or not debate. Just know Christians do not. The Bible teaches very specifically that we have, we are souls that have a body together. And that's what constitutes a living being, us. So there's no endless cycle of rebirth and any of that in the Christian faith. So it's appointed for men to die and then judgment. Now the text doesn't say when that happens. It doesn't give the nuance of how long after death is judgment. It doesn't give any, it just says there's death and there's judgment after death. What happens in between? We'll look at that in a little bit. But that's one premise. 1 John chapter 5, I'm I'm reading off some passages, I'll mention them so you can write them down and then look at them on your own. Um, What we know for sure, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11, 12, and 13, the one who has the Son, Jesus, has the life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John chapter 5 is very explicit. If life is in Jesus, he is the light of the world. He is the life that's come into this world and, and to shed his light. So apart from him is darkness. Now this is kind of offensive, obviously, to other religions. And so we don't want to, you know, we want to be candid. We want to be upfront and say, yeah, this is what scripture teaches. That if Jesus was who he says he was, then he is the source of life. And apart from him is darkness. So we have to be okay with that if we claim to believe in Scripture and believe in the Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and human beings, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all, the testimony at the proper time. One God, one mediator between God and humanity, and that's Jesus. So these are what the New Testament teaches explicitly. 
We also get God's heart in all of this. The Old Testament, Ezekiel, one of my favorite book, my favorite jujitsu technique, obviously, but one of my favorite books of the Bible, Ezekiel, in chapter 33, God is pleading with Israel. And he says to Ezekiel, to tell Israel, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, surely I take no delight in the death of the wicked. Rather, that the wicked would return from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your ways, O evil ones. Why should you die, house of Israel? Ezekiel, and he also says this in chapter 18, God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. His whole goal is for people to turn from darkness to his light, as revealed in Jesus, we find in the New Testament. But this is what God's heart is. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, this is good and acceptable before God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. All people, God wants to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. This is bedrock scripture. Second Peter, so Paul says it to Timothy, 2 Peter 3.9, Apostle or Peter, the first pope, if you're Catholic, Peter says, the Lord is not delaying the promise as some consider slowness, but is being patient toward you because he does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So Peter is saying, once again, just what Paul said, just what Ezekiel said, God does not want or enjoy or like sending judgment, casting anyone away. He wants everyone to turn to him. So what do we do with this? God wants everyone to be saved. Not everyone is going to be saved. God wants everyone to have life in the Son, Jesus. Not everyone's going to actually ever hear about Jesus. How do we hold those things in tension? Well, Christians have had different approaches, and I'm going to give you four different ways Christians have uh, looked at this topic and give you a little bit of scripture to tell you where each one's coming from so you can understand. The first view, and this is probably the most common, this is the one that's certainly caricatured the most by skeptics and uh, fundamentalists, is the restrictivist view. And the restrictivist view says, yeah, only those who hear about Jesus go to heaven. Those who don't hear about Jesus, if you don't confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you die in your sins and there's no hope for you. That's the restrictivist view. They point to Romans chapter 10, where it says, how then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear about him without someone who goes and preaches to them? So for restrictivists, the gospel is the, the, the <laughs> vaccines are all the rage right now, right? There's a pandemic. So if somebody came and said, hey, I have a cure for COVID, a legit one, and it was this pill, and you could take it, and immediately you were cured, 100% then we would be devoting all of our resources as a society to making sure every single person has access to that pill. That's the goal, if it is what it says it is. Well, restrictivists say that's the gospel. Humanity is dying of sin. Humanity is condemned because of who we are, because of what we've done, not because of what other people did before us. We die for our own sins. If you want to know how sinful humanity is, look around. If you want to see the evils of humanity, look around. Human depravity is the most easily provable doctrine just by flipping through a history book. So restrictivists say, so therefore, we just believe that Jesus is the cure. He is the, the savior of the world. And it's up to us to make sure that everyone hears this message. So, so this is the, the view of those who are kind of like the soul winners. You know, we're, we're, everybody's going to hear and, and evangelism and uh, missions and satellite TVs to spread the gospel everywhere. So this becomes their motive for, for Christians who hold the restrictivist view is everything hinges on us getting the gospel out there. And so it's a powerful push on missions. And they point to Jesus' words. In Matthew 7, Jesus said straight up, uh, enter through the narrow gate, because broad is the gate and spacious is the road that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. But narrow is the gate and constricted is the road that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So restrictivists point to Jesus and say, hey, even Jesus said it. A lot of people are not going to find the narrow gate, the narrow door. They're not going to walk the road of discipleship. They're going to reject the gospel. And that's just something that God already knows and we just have to deal with it. So that's one view. And restrictivists in history, you know, uh, St. Augustine, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, 
th this is a popular view among Christians, but it's not the only view. That's the key. It's not the only view. There are other views. There are views, uh, the opportunity view, or, or in Catholic circles, the Molinist view. And this is from people from Aquinas to Arminius to uh, Molina, even modern uh, recent speakers like Norm Geisler. Uh, this is the view that basically says God goes out of his way to reach those who don't know him, but who would respond to the gospel if they heard it. In other words, they point to uh, things like Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian who was sitting there reading Isaiah and didn't understand what he was reading. And God supernaturally sent Philip to explain the gospel to him, and he was saved, and he took the gospel to Ethiopia, and that's how it spread, and you have the Coptic Christians, even to this day, trace their origin back to this Ethiopian eunuch's encounter with Philip. You have Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, a Gentile, and God speaks in a vision to him. In the Old Testament, you have numerous accounts of God working outside of the covenant people of Israel to uh, uh, individuals, Gentiles, kings, giving them messages, speaking to them. It, there, he has a relationship with them. So people like Balaam in the book of Numbers, the prophet, he was a legit prophet of Yahweh. The text says Balaam was a prophet of, and it uses the covenant name Yahweh. He was a legit prophet. Now he turned evil and he met destruction in the end, but he had a relationship with God completely apart from the covenant people of Israel. Uh, people like Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Melchizedek comes out of nowhere. We don't even know who he is. We don't know. We just know he's the prince or the, the ruler of the king of this place called Salem, and which just means peace. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham in the name of God. So Melchizedek has a relationship with God, and then he's gone. We don't know anything about him. Um, in Genesis 20, God appears to the Abimelech. Abimelech was a title of a king in the ancient world. And God appears to one of these Abimelechs and he, uh, speaks to him in a dream, preserves him from sinning against God in a dream. Think of the book of Daniel in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan Babylonian king. God speaks to him in dreams and then sends Daniel to interpret. So what opportunists say is, look, we have enough evidence in Scripture to know that if someone would be predisposed to believing in God, God makes a way for them to hear his message, for them to hear the gospel, for them to be saved. God makes a way, even if it's a supernatural. Uh, opportunists point to a lot of uh, the Muslim world today. Many, many people, research this sometime, people who come to faith in Muslim societies, many of them, a staggering amount of them come to faith in Jesus through dreams of Jesus. Well, Islam has always placed such a high value on dreams as a way that God communicates with people that it makes sense that if, if God wants to reach people, that's one of the things he would use in a culture where dreams are held in such high regard, as opposed to here where dreams are, could just be the pizza you ate before you went to dinner. You know, we don't put much stock in dreams. Some cultures do, and God uses those. So opportunists say God can use anything at his disposal, and he will make sure that the people who would, who would receive the gospel, who would accept his offer, get a chance to hear the message somehow. Whether it's a dream, a vision, uh, an angelic divine visitation, or, or, or sending a missionary into some remote area at just the right time when this tribal group is is crying out for knowledge of God or whatever because the crops are failing or the childbirth uh, rates are plummeting or whatever. I mean, these are all things that have happened in the history of missions and Christianity. Some may be bogus, some may be real, we don't know. The opportunist says God will make a way. And we leave it up to Him. And we have evidence in Scripture that He has made a way. The Molinists take a slightly different approach, a little more philosophical approach, and Molinism says, God has providentially ordered the world in such a way that everyone he foreknows would freely choose to follow him is born into a time and a place where they are given the opportunity to make that choice. So for Molinism, if someone dies apart from Jesus, apart from a saving experience with Jesus, it's because God already knew that they would never freely accept Jesus if given the chance. Now, 
Molinism, there are not too many people that hold to it. It's, it's more of a philosophical concept rather than a biblical concept. Um, but, you know, guys like William Lane Craig, you can follow him here on Facebook. I believe he's made some pretty strong uh, presentations of Molinism. And, of course, Catholics uh, following the Jesuit uh, Molina have filled this out some. But those are broadly in the same category is that God will either through supernatural providence I mean, excuse me, through supernatural intervention or through his divine providence, God makes it so that everybody who would accept him gets a chance in this life to make that choice. So that's the second position. Restrictivist, you don't hear it, you die, go to hell. Opportunist, if you're somebody who would respond to it, God's going to make sure you get a chance to hear the message. Third view, the postmortem, the second chance view. Uh, Clement of Alexandria, Hippolytus, Athanasius, Ambrose, these are a few of the church fathers who held something of this view. This view basically says uh, those who die without having heard the gospel, genuinely without having heard the gospel, are given a chance on the other side of death to, to respond or to reject it. They point to, for instance, 1 Peter 3. There's a cryptic passage in 1 Peter chapter 3. It's been interpreted in a number of different ways. But it says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, in order that he could bring you to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison who were formerly disobedient when the patience of God waited in the days of Noah while an ark was being constructed, in which a few, that is eight, were rescued through the water. And then he goes on to say, they will give an account to the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead, because for this reason, the gospel was preached to those who are dead, so that they were judged by human standards in the flesh, meaning they died, but they may live in the spirit by God's standards. So, 1 Peter, chapters 3 and 4, people who hold to the post-mortem view say, this is, this is an example those who died, who were formerly disobedient, those who died without hearing about Jesus, the gospel, when Jesus died, was even preached to those who were dead. And some link this with the concept of the harrowing of hell, where Jesus died, he ascended into hell to set free the captives, those who had been held in bondage, waiting for the gospel for, for all the ages before Jesus. Uh, maybe, I don't know, I don't put a ton of stock in that personally, but, uh, but the first Peter passage, it's cryptic. It's, it's not, there's, there are multiple views of this passage if you look at Peter commentaries. So just understand that it's not open and shut, but for people who advocate the post-mortem view, they do say this is evidence that even death can't stop the gospel from getting preached. And so does that conflict with Hebrews that says it's appointed a man to die and then face judgment? Postmortem advocates say, no, no, not necessarily, because it doesn't say it's appointed for man to die and immediately face judgment. Death, whatever, then judgment. So the postmortem view says that in between time of death and judgment, the gospel is presented. Again, it's a view that some Christians have held. Maybe, maybe not. It's an option. Fourth view. So restrictivist view, the traditional kind of fundamentalist view. Uh, the, the second view is the opportunity or the Molinist view that God's going to make a way. Third view is the inclusive, uh, excuse me, third view is the postmortem. God's going to give people a chance who never got to hear after they died. Fourth view is the inclusivist or some call the wider hope view. And the wider hope or the inclusivist view says, look, everybody who's saved, everyone who will be with God in the new creation, what we call heaven, for all eternity, will be there because of what Jesus did on the cross. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. There is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. So he is the means. But even though everyone who is saved is saved by or through Jesus's actions, it doesn't follow that they have to be cognizant or speak 
the name of Jesus. And so, for example, inclusivists say, look at the Old Testament saints. Look at people in the Old Testament, people of God. They were saved. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Um, these people had a relationship with God. They, they, people like Samuel, you know, they, they were with God. They lived for God, and they died righteous people. So they never knew Jesus. They never knew the gospel. Nobody ever led them down the Romans road or gave them a Billy Graham track. So how are they saved? Well, they believed God, and it was credited to them as righteousness, like with Abraham. Believed God. They, they didn't have the, the nuts and bolts of the proper theology, but they knew enough to know, I'm sinful, I need help, I cannot do this on my own. Lord, rescue me. That's all they knew. And they cried out, and they had a relationship with God. So, the cross in history, the power of the cross stretches back in time. When Jesus died on the cross, that atoning death was able to reach back in time to the Old Testament saints in some way that we can't, you know, ferret out in, in full detail. But we just know that those who were saved were saved by faith, even if it was faith in something that they didn't know the full ramifications of until he appeared in the flesh as Jesus. So if the power of the cross can reach back in time to those who didn't necessarily know the name Jesus, but they had a faith relationship with the God of Israel, with the God of the universe, people like Melchizedek, people outside of Israel even, if the power of the cross can go back in history, why can't it go forward as well? Why can't today even people who may not know the name of Jesus by name, but genuinely have a relationship of some type with God, the light that they have, they're following it as best they can. Why can't that be the case with them as well? And so wider hope inclusivists say that's, that's what we see the nature of God to be. And so it makes sense that that's how he works as well. They point to things like Psalm 19, where the, the first half of Psalm 19 is all about God's gospel, God's message going out through creation so that everybody has some knowledge of God. Everybody, no matter what remote tribe you are from, you have a knowledge of there's a great being who's the cause of all this. Now, you may have a lot of other beliefs that are kind of all over the place, but somewhere in the human psyche, there's this belief that there is a God above all. Even in polytheistic cultures, there's, there's still a God who's above all or before all or, or a divine source or something like that. Um, they point to Romans 1, 19 and 20, because what can be known about God is evident among them, for God made it clear to them. It's talking about all of humanity. For from the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and deity, are discerned clearly, being understood in the things created, so they are without excuse. That nobody can say, well, God, I just didn't know. That, that in some way, everyone has knowledge that there is a being above them, and that they fall short of goodness. Everybody has that knowledge. Romans 2 goes on to talk about, chapter, four, chapter 2, verse 14 says, Whenever the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things of the law, these, although they don't have the law, are a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts one after the other, accusing or defending them on the day when God judges the secret things of people, according to my gospel, through Jesus Christ. So Paul in Romans 2 is saying, even those outside of the law, of the covenant of Israel, even they are able to do the things of the covenant at times because they have an imprint of the divine. They have, everyone is an image bearer of God. And so there's a residual effect that the, the, the law of God is written to some degree on the conscience of every person. So for some people, what if they never hear the message? Well, God is wanting people to reach out to him, to seek, seek and you will find, knock, it will be open to you. Um, so inclusivists, they say, look at Hebrews eleven six. It says, now without faith, it's impossible to please him. For the one who approaches God must believe that he exists and is a rewarder of those who seek him. That if, if somebody's earnestly seeking God, he rewards that. 
that's the kind of God he is. He's not the God who takes pleasure in the death of the wicked. So if somebody is truly seeking him, God rewards that in some way, whether that's through giving them the full gospel, like he did with you know Priscilla and I mean with Apollos or or others in the New Testament who had part of the gospel, or whether he accepts them and reckons credits it as righteousness, like he did with Abraham. Um, in Acts chapter ten, Peter stands up, opens his mouth, and he says, "In truth, I understand that God is not one who shows partiality, but in every nation, the one who fears Him and who does what is right." is acceptable to him. And so Peter recognized this is not the same thing as works righteousness, earning your salvation. This is basically those in every culture, in every country who do what is right, they have some relationship with God. And it's evident through their what they're doing, how they're living. And Peter recognizes this. And then he goes on to preach the full gospel. Acts 17, Paul speaking to a group of skeptics in the in the Areopagus at Mars Hill and he, he's they have all these idols and all these tombs to unknown gods they're very religious it's like you know walking into a, a yoga studio or something today you know you got a, a Hindu um, passage written on the wall you got a sculpture of the Buddha over here you may have a Shinto something in the background maybe there's a cross as well you want to hedge all your bets you know this modern spirituality of mixing everything together it's nothing new it's what they did in Athens at the time so they invite Paul to speak because he's, he's talking this this gospel thing and so he he's given an open platform he stands up and he's talking to the people of Athens he says I see you're very religious I look around I see all these tombs to an unknown God or all these tombs to different gods and I see a tomb to what you call the unknown God hmm I'm gonna explain that God to you so he uses their concept of the unknown God as a bridge to make the secret things of God the revealed things of God so he gives the gospel through this. And he says in his uh, sermon in Acts 17, he says, And he made from one man every nation of humanity to live on the face of the earth, determining their fixed times and their fixed boundaries of their habitation, to search for God, if perhaps indeed they might feel around for him and find him. And indeed, he is not far away from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. And then he quotes a couple of, uh, of Greek poets. For we are his offspring. That's a line of Greek poetry. And so he says, therefore, because we are offspring of God, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and thought. Therefore, although God has overlooked the times of ignorance, he now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man who he has appointed having provided proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Paul, to this group of skeptics, says, look, here's the deal. God's overlooked times of ignorance. That in and of itself has fascinating ramifications for what we believe about salvation. God's overlooked times of ignorance, literally not knowing. But now he has made known the, the means of salvation, and he did it by raising this guy from the dead. That's the basis of everything. So everything I'm saying in this video, everything that every Christian has ever believed, all of it hinges on one fact. Did God raise Jesus from the dead or not? That's it. Everything else falls if that didn't happen. Everything. 100% of the gospel is wrong if that didn't happen. So that's a big point that we want to be sure on. But that's the whole point of the gospel. That's the focus. And Paul is saying that's the event. The raising of Jesus from the dead changed everything. And so now is the time where the kingdom of God is advancing and we are announcing it. And you have a choice whether you want to get in on it or whether you want to continue in whatever it is you're doing. But that's the gospel. Jesus said in John 10, he said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring these also. They'll hear my voice and they will become one flock under one shepherd. So even Jesus to his Jewish followers told them, hey guys, I have sheep outside of this fold. I'm bigger than just this. Again, we don't know what God's doing in the world. He doesn't tell us everything he's doing. He tells us what we need to know. There's, a, there's an awesome scene 
So under this wider hope inclusivist view, there's a scene in a book. I mentioned C.S. Lewis in the last uh, session that we did. I'm going to mention him again. C.S. Lewis is my favorite author. I think everybody should read everything he ever wrote, period. In The Last Battle, the end of the Narnia Chronicles, there's an account. You should absolutely read all of the Narnia books, but The Last Battle in particular is probably my favorite because in, in The Last Battle, the way it's set up, is there's this this antichrist type figure, this figure that's led the world astray, this this ape, uh, because he apes Jesus, and, or he apes Aslan, and he's an a, a literal ape in the book, and he sets up this this concept and he puts it into the minds of the people of Narnia that um, Aslan, who he really is, so he's kind of like this wannabe prophet of Aslan, and Aslan is the the Jesus figure, the the divine figure in Narnia. And there are people in Narnia, the Kalormines, and or Kalorman, I've never actually heard the word pronounced, but uh, they are like, they believe in this other god. They're from kind of down in the south. And they worship this other god named Tash, this fearsome god that's got like a vulture head and he's got like just teeth and, and he's, he's scary and he's terrifying and he's just this awful fearsome god, Tash. That's the god of Kalorman. That's the god that they worship. And so this Antichrist figure, uh, Shift is his name in the book, Shift tells the people that it's all the same, that, that, that Aslan and Tash are the same thing. And, 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 and he, he creates this concept of Tashland, basically. Like it's all, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe, it's all the same. And so there's a scene in it where one of the followers of Tash, this young Kalorman, hears, if you go in this building, there's a shed, and in the shed you're going to encounter... Aslan, you're going to encounter Tashlan or whatever, and and beware because he's fearsome and mighty, and so everybody that goes into the shed doesn't come out. And what's happened is the ape has set some people in the shed to ambush anybody that comes in, kill them, and make sure they don't come out. But he's telling everybody on the outside, oh, they've been received by the god, they've been sacrificed, they've been, you know, he, he's angry. So you better keep listening to me. Well. Eventually, they all go in the shed, all the kids and everything, and, and the shed becomes a doorway into the, the, what we would call heaven or new creation. And I'm super simplifying this. you got to read the book. Um, but at one point on the other side in heaven, they run into this soldier, this Kalorman soldier who never worshipped Aslan, always worshipped Tash his whole life. And they are like, well, what are you doing here? You worship Tash. This is Aslan's country. How are you? How did you make it here? And so the soldier then tells them about what happened when he went into the shed, and that he encountered this terrible figure, and then it passed away, and then he saw this um, this this fearsome lion. So he's talking about encountering Aslan as a follower of Tash, and he says, "This is from the uh, chapter 15 of the Last Battle." He says, "Then I fell at his feet and thought." Surely this is the hour of death for the lion who is worthy of all honor. He knew it now. It was too late. He knew Aslan was who he was at this point. The lion who is worthy of all honor will know that I have served Tash all my days and not him. Nevertheless, it's better to see the lion and die than to be a, a Tisrock, which is like a, a sheik or a king uh, of the world and live and not to have seen him. But the glorious one bent down his golden head and touched my forehead with his tongue and said, Son, thou art welcome. But I said, Alas, Lord, I'm no son of thine, but a servant of Tash. He answered, Child, all the service thou hast done to Tash, I account as service done to me. Then by reasons of my great desire for wisdom and understanding, I overcame my fear and I questioned the glorious one and said, Lord, is it true as the ape said that thou and Tash are one? The lion growled so that the earth shook, but his wrath was not against me, and said, It is false, not because he and I are one, but because we are opposites. I take to me the services which thou hast done to him. For I and he are of such different kinds that no service which is vile can be done to me, and none which is not vile can be done to him. Therefore, if any man swear by Tash and keep his oath for the oath's sake, it's by me that he is truly sworn, though he know it not. And it's I who reward him. 
And if any man do a cruelty in my name, then though he says the name Aslan, it is Tash whom he serves, and by Tash his deed is accepted. Dost thou understand, child? I said, Lord, thou knowest how much I understand. But I said also, for the truth constrained me, yet I have been seeking Tash all my days. Beloved, said the glorious one, unless thy desire had been for me, thou wouldst not have sought so long and so truly, for all find what they truly seek. I love that passage because if the wider hope view is correct, and I'm not saying necessarily that it is or isn't, but if it is correct, that's probably what it looks like. That everyone who's genuinely seeking the Lord finds Him because God knows they're genuinely seeking Him. And He makes a way, whether it's like the opportunists say, He provides them a way to hear the gospel, or whether it's like the wider hope proponents say, that God reckons their righteousness because of their faith. Even if their faith was misplaced cognitively, their faith, their heart faith was genuine. This is not the same thing as being just sincere. There are a lot of people that are sincere and they're sincerely wrong. This is about something deeper than that. It's about a, an inward drive, an inward longing for God and a recognition that God is not within us in the sense of we're all divine, that God is not this tree, that God is not uh, you know, whatever we want to turn God into, but rather that it's deeper than that, deeper than that, even deeper, foundationally, ontologically speaking, we are created to be in relationship with one who is outside of creation and above creation and, and, and who is beyond what we can imagine, but yet who is intimate and, and close and imminent with us. So all of this stuff, what we have to do when we come to all of these views, all of these concepts, everything the Bible is teaching, we have to hold it in loose hands. We don't hold the gospel in loose hands. The gospel is sure and true. But when we start to ask outside of the gospel, outside of the, the way that we've been taught, or at least the way that we're familiar with, what's God doing? The secret things belong to the Lord. And the judge of all the earth will do what's right. Some people ask, they say, well, I had friends that, you know, my, my, my grandmother was the sweetest lady ever, and, and she was, you know, she died without ever being a Christian. Is she in hell right now? My response to that is, I don't know. But if she is, it won't be over something that she didn't have, a, that she didn't have knowledge of. It won't be because she just didn't get a chance. Anyone who ultimately when God judges the earth and separates the sheep from the goats, the good fish from the bad fish, the wheat from the weeds, all these parables that Jesus told, ultimately everyone who is, who is, is confined away from the presence of God, which is what hell is, it's not a cave under the earth with pointy guys with pointy horns and pitchforks and fire, and it's not that. It's the absence of everything good, the, the complete absence of all that is good in, that we can even imagine. That's hell, including friendship. When people are like, I'd rather party with my friends in hell, well, there's no partying, because partying is a good thing. There's no friendship. Friendship is a good thing. In hell, those things are not existent. Those, those don't exist. Everyone who is not with the Lord for eternity Scripture is clear. It will be because they chose their own way, their own sin, over God's offer of salvation. Point blank. How does that work in cases like unreached peoples that never get to hear a missionary come or, or somebody preach a gospel? I don't know. How did it work with Melchizedek? I don't know. Is it up to me? to figure it out and give a satisfactory answer? No, it's not. And it's not up to you either. The judge of all the earth will do what's right. On the day of judgment, when God makes clear the hearts of everyone, all the, 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 the errant words that we've ever spoken, all the thoughts we've ever had, all, when everything is laid bare, everybody deserves to be canceled. 
everybody deserves to be canceled. The grace of the gospel is, in spite of all of that, God is offering a way out of that. He's offered through his son Jesus, this can all be negated because of the price that I, that I myself paid on your behalf. All you have to do is accept it. How does that work in the lives of people that don't ever hear? I don't know. And, and no theologian knows. No Bible scholar knows. If they tell you they know and give you one of these four views that we put forth, they are being disingenuous because nobody knows completely because the secret things belong to the Lord. Alistair McGrath. So I mentioned uh, the Narnia books. I'm going to mention two other books because uh, I like to get people to read, obviously. First book is edited by Boyd and Eddie, or Edie. I don't know how you pronounce his name, but it's called Across the Spectrum. This is a book about all of the theological concepts that Christians, evangelical Christians, have different views on. So like what we talked about today, a lot of those are in the section on what happens, people that don't hear the gospel, and there's different views that are presented. This is an excellent book. I recommend it to everybody for sure. Another book that's excellent as well is it's called Four Views on Salvation in a Pluralistic World. And again, if this image is backwards, I apologize. I don't know how to flip it on an Android. Uh, iPhone gives you the option on Facebook Live. Android doesn't. But this book, Four Views on Salvation in a Pluralistic World, the, the contributor, Alistair McGrath, who does the, the final essay in it, um, he, he has a great line in, that he ends his chapter with in talking about the people from other faiths, sincere Buddhists, sincere Muslims, sincere Jews, sincere uh, Taoists, you know, all of these. Other, he's like, what about them? What does the Christian faith say to them? He ends his essay, and it's a good essay. I recommend you read it. But he ends his essay by saying, we may not fully understand the issues. Nevertheless, we firmly believe that we may rely on the wisdom, righteousness, and goodness of God embodied supremely in Jesus Christ as we consider the question of salvation and other religions. And I think McGrath is dead on in that. I think he's absolutely correct. Is what I tell people. So what do you think? My granddad was, was Jewish and never believed in Jesus. You saying he's in hell? Um, I'm not saying he's in hell. I'm not saying he's in heaven. Judgment hasn't happened yet. Final judgment's going to happen one day. And I don't know. I didn't know your granddad. I don't know your brother. I don't know your sister. I don't know your friend. I, I don't even know you, depending on who I'm talking to. But you know who does? You know who knows every single thought they've ever had? You know who wants them to be with him forever more than anyone in this world could ever possibly want? God. That's who. So I trust his judgment on who is in heaven and who is in hell when all is said and done. Because he's the one that wants the most people in heaven and the fewest people in hell. And he's the one in the position to judge. So he's the one who I'm going to listen to. And he hasn't told us in advance what it's going to look like. We do know this from Jesus' parables. There are going to be a lot of surprises on Judgment Day. You read through Jesus' parables, especially when he was talking to the religious leaders, talking about people from the East and the West coming to dine in the kingdom at the wedding feast of the Lamb, talking about the people who thought they were on the inside going to be confined to the outside when he says, away from me, I never knew you. Even though they said, we did this in your name, we prayed, we prophesied, we cast out demons, we healed the sick, da, da, da. and Jesus is going to say, away, I never knew you. So Jesus tells us there's going to be a lot of surprises on that day. Our job is not to figure out who's going to be where and, and who's going to heaven, who's going to hell. And, and That's not our job. Leave that to God. Trust that if there is someone who is, is, is innocent, who is righteous, who is sincerely seeking with all of their heart to know where they come from, who created them, who you know, is grasping for God, we trust that God already knows that. He already knows their heart. And he wants them to be saved more than we ever could. That's enough for me. I just let it go at that. The, the gospel proclamation 
John 3.16, the most famous verse. Everybody knows this verse. John 3.16, let me read this. This is what we're going to end with because we're coming up at, we're, we're right at about an hour. And so uh, segment to, to end on. John 3.16 starts, for in this way God loved the world. Other translations say gave his one and only son in order that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world in order that he should judge the world but in order that the world should be saved through him is not judged. But the one who does not believe has already been judged because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And this is the judgment. This is what that means. This is what it means to be judged. Light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices evil hates the light and doesn't come into the light, lest his deeds be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light in order that his deeds may be revealed, that they are done in God. There's so much in here. We could do a whole sermon series just on that verse, but I'm not. I'm a teacher, not a preacher. But if I were a preacher and this were a pulpit, um, I would walk through this text and point out all of the profound, I mean, like, talk about a dense line, a dense passage. The stuff Jesus is saying in this is so profound. He's talking about, look, I came to rescue and save because the world was already in darkness. Because the world was already not good. I, goodness, came into the world to shine a light on it. And there are two responses to the light. There are those who want to hide their deeds. They, they don't want to come into the light because they know their deeds. And there are those who allow themselves to be seen in the light and who, who accept all of the culpability, all the blame, allow their deeds to be exposed so that the light can purify them. And that they can then walk in the light as he is in the light and have fellowship with God and one another. First John says that. So that our whole thinking of the gospel, sometimes people have the wrong view. They think the gospel is about everybody on earth is doing their thing. And there's two ladders. Well, one goes down to hell, one goes up to heaven. And your whole job on earth is through your good works to make the ladder up to heaven. And if you don't do good works, you end up falling down the ladder to hell. And that's not the biblical view at all. The biblical view is not that at all. The biblical view is sin has infected everything. Sin is like COVID-19 on crack. Sin is everyone's been exposed. Everyone is symptomatic and everyone is spreading it all over the place. The gospel is the cure stepping into that and saying, let me get that virus out of you. And then let me equip you with the antibodies you need to live in a virally infected world in a way that points other people to me as the cure. And so that they will want to take the cure and that they then in turn will go. So it's this, the gospel is spreading throughout the earth. And the question we have is, well, what about the people who die before it ever reaches them? That's what we've been talking about today. I hope at the end of this, whichever of those four views you find most compelling, um, I hope at the very least that you keep in mind the first two premises that we started with. The secret things belong to the Lord. So they're just things we don't know and won't ever know this side of eternity. And that um, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And that's it. We go with what we know. We live the faith that we have. We share the relationship that Jesus, that we have with other people. We offer. We don't demand. We don't browbeat. We offer. That's the gospel. We just announce, hey, Jesus is king. And he wants you as one of his subjects because he's doing stuff that's going to be amazing 
when all is said and done. And everything wrong in this world, everything you see and hate, guess what? He hates it too. And he's going to fix it. That's the message of the gospel. 